This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome in, everybody. You are listening once again to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. So pleased to have you joining us today for this conversation. My guest is Mandy Freilich. Mandy is an experienced director of innovation and technology integrator and teacher. Her interest lies in reinvigorating and re-engaging teachers back into the profession, as well as what's needed to support teachers in their pursuit of innovative and divergent thinking and teaching. So whatever role you play in schools, there's going to be a lot here to think about. Mandy is the author of a number of books, including Reignite the Flames, published by Edge Match, which we're discussing today. Mandy, welcome to The Authority. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So the subtitle there on the book is finding our passion and purpose for learning among the embers. Kind of wanted to unpack that a little <laughs> bit to start and really start with those embers. I mean, what what does that look like? What are they? When, when we're talking about this phenomenon of burnout, right? And, and what it looks like in individual educators or inside schools, what are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, I, I always thought that it was an appropriate visual as a fire starts to go. If you ever had a campfire, it starts to go out and you try to get slower. And then all that's left are those burning embers. Right. But what's interesting about embers in a fire is that if you throw another piece of wood on, or you throw some paper on, it can, it can relight itself. And so that's really what the book is trying to look at. Like it's trying to look at we have such a close emotional tie to education when we work in education, more so than any many other professions with the exception of maybe doctors and nurses. We have a very close emotional tie. It's different than, say, an accountant or you know somebody who provides customer service on the end of a line. Like it's not the same type of thing. And so when so what makes teaching and working in schools just a little bit different when it comes to burnout is that, it's an emotional transition that happens. You know, it's not that we just don't like our jobs. It's that our entire purpose and our our entire tie to our profession has dwindled or gone away or started to sever. So that's really what the embers are talking about. It's like when it comes down that far, how do we throw that piece of paper in or throw the extra wood on the fire? You know, who helps us with that? And how do we get the fire burning again for our work? Yeah. And continuing on that point, as you mentioned it being this emotional transition, there's a part of one of the uh, the book quote testimonials where there's an educator who writes that the book came into her life when she was confused, lost, and heartbroken, right? Which is obviously an emotional language and not something that's always associated with professional concerns, even when we talk about burnout or being disillusioned, disenchanted, all these things, but to really feel like that sense of that, that broken heart. Uh, And I, I think it's even worth a little further discussion of what 
makes educators predisposed to burnout in these ways. And because it's worth recognizing among those who can support them, right? administrators, others to see, okay, what are the factors that are leading to not just professional burnout, but really that holistic sense of personally feeling depleted. Yeah. And, and educators, like when they, when people go into education, they go in with this, just for a lot of people, this unrivaled amount of empathy for other people, this feeling like they're trying to make a difference in the world. You know, they've considered other professions that make a difference in the world and they've settled on teaching. And I think that those types of people who do a lot of things for other people who are typically people pleasers, who usually don't have a lot of boundaries because they're just willing to do for everybody else before they do for themselves. When education gets into a state as it's gotten, and to be honest, like my adventure with burnout started 10 years ago. So it's not like the pandemic has been the only thing. We just weren't willing to talk about it before because it is a really emotionally charged profession. And so those types of people, when they're in the spots where they're doing for other doing for other people and society in general is going through this rather difficult transition with a lot of things going on and they feel that empathy and they're working in these schools they can go through a few things that cause them to disengage and they're all listed in reignite the flames they're you know personal adversity so something happens at home there's a sickness they're taking care of aging parents there's something going on professional adversity there's teacher trauma, which I have defined as being things that are very specific to teaching that happen that can cause trauma to teachers. So things like active shooting drills, you know, different kinds of abuses from students and parents, whether that be verbal or physical. So those types of things, that's teacher trauma. And we have secondary traumatic stress, which was a, has always been a big thing in education, but especially during the pandemic, when we see difficult things and traumas happening over and over to people or we hear about them, that can cause us to have symptoms of PTSD. And again, that heightened during the pandemic for teachers who were uh, then able to see into their students' houses and see some of the things going on that they had only heard about before. Let's see, we have burnout, which of course we've spoken about, demoralization. We have like uh, different like complex post-traumatic stress disorder from social injustices like racism and discrimination against the LGBTQ community and just a stigma response to mental health, people with mental health issues. All of those things can also contribute to burnout and or contribute to a, a disengagement. And so there's a lot of reasons why people can disengage. And so part of the, the struggle with that is that there is not one way to help them. Um, you know, there's not one thing that an administrator can do. And that's been, I think, frustrating for administrators who really truly do have a desire to help. They want that one quick answer and it's not there because it's very personal. And so, yeah, so that's been, again, it's just been really one of the struggles, I think, in trying to help people in this profession. In my work, I've collaborated directly with hundreds of educators to support their success. Do you know which of their ed tech frustrations comes up time and again? The sheer number of tools out there and the difficulty of knowing which ones schools like theirs are using to get results. IXL is different. Not only does it perform the functions of dozens of tools, it's currently delivering results for one in four U.S. students, including those in 95 of the top 100 districts. Another major pain point that comes up, when a school is excited to implement a new tool only to find out the teachers hate it. Yikes. It helps to know that IXL is loved and trusted by more than one million teachers saving them time on prep work while enabling them to better support student learning. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments. And independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? If you have a goal to increase 
achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com forward slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com forward slash BE. Going back also to we talk about finding our passion and purpose, right? There's this is a profession and a vocation, right? In which there's an assumption that passion and purpose are present, that people who choose to go into education are aligned to bought into the purpose of that work, have a parent. And that in turn, right, that assumption and expectation leads to the adverse effects when those things are being trampled upon versus there are Mm -hmm. plenty of jobs out there where either there's not a strong expectation of those things, or maybe the passion is something outside of the actual position. It's passion for money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's not that I love what I do, but I love what it gets me kind of thing, right? There's a variety of different, but in here in particular, right? It's very specific. And in so many ways, like when you think about what educators, the deck is stacked against being able to consistently achieve the results that would be truly fulfilling, right? It's, there's Mm -hmm. so many factors that make it difficult to ensure that every student is really succeeding and what that looks like and all of the criticisms and things that it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, it's almost unavoidable to face some of these. And then you stack on top things like you said, active shooter drill. (laughs) Whereas in some cases we hear some of these terminologies like trauma, secondary traumatic stress, and it may sound, but realistically, Mm -hmm. like these are, should not be normal things that this is a part of somebody's day-to-day students (laughs) included and teachers, right? That these are, this is just part of what we do now is Mm -hmm. we prepare. So how, is there anything, I guess, that comes to mind that could be done better preventatively ahead of time to say, okay, obviously once we've made a routine of going through some of these things, there's going to be adverse effects. <laughs> Are there things we could be better rethinking at the beginning to say, can can it just not happen in the first place? Yeah. And you hit on something that I've heard a lot. I had heard prior to the pandemic too, but during the pandemic, it was really hit hard. And it was that idea of finding your why. And I believe in that, obviously, talk about purpose. It's kind of the same thing, follows along those lines. But I think what people are finding is that it's not that they don't know or forgot their why, it's that they can't. And so that that's very frustrating as well when you feel like, okay, I defined this purpose. It's a good purpose. It's a human-based purpose. It's something that's going to make the world better. And I can't do it here. And then to have it be something where people are coming back and saying, find your why. And you're thinking, I didn't lose it. I can't do it. (laughs) And so that's actually something that I think is someplace that you could start. Like, is, are the things that you're, that are happening in your school or in your district, are they actually aligned to what would be a purpose for education? Or like we've gotten into, in some states, you know, and even in Wisconsin, we have open enrollment. And so districts have almost gotten to where they're marketing and it's this weird commercial space. Like, And is that really where, is that what we want to do? Is that where we are right now, where we want to spend money and spend manpower marketing our districts? Like, is that a thing? Or is it that we really need to, you know, turn around and see where else we could be spending our, our time and our resources when they're so, we just don't have a lot of them. So things like that. Also, I mean, there's things the district can do to help support uh, from the standpoint of that, that they're very tangible and very logistical things like taking a look at the insurance. And, you know, when I talk to districts, a lot of people say, well, our insurance covers mental health services and things, but what do they cover? And is it after deductible? Because that's usually what it is. So they usually have some high deductible, you know, they're giving back the $5,000 deductible, they're giving back 2,500 on your HSA or whatever it is, but the person still has to pay $2,500 
and that people can't afford that. This is the kicker. And then they might also only, they might only okay 10 sessions or something. Well, if you're really struggling and you need to see somebody every week or bi-weekly, that money adds up fast and the sessions add up fast. That's not even going to get you through half the year. And so when you start to look at things like that, what are you actually doing for people? You know, you're telling them to get help, but then you're putting them in a spot of spending a lot of money and, and potentially not getting the services that they actually need. And so what can, like, how can we like push our insurances to really make sure that they're covering the things that we need, that somehow there's a plan where things like really important things like mental health is covered hundred percent from day one. And there, there are outside companies. I had spoken with one about six months ago. That's what they do. That's their entire job is to backfill those mental health pieces that are usually lacking with insurances. And so when people say, I don't know where to start, I would say, start with the tangible, start with the things that you can see because emotions and burnout and demoralization and all these things, they feel very abstract. And so you need to start with the things that you know you can change and see on paper. And then that will lead you down the road to help some of the other things that are a little bit more abstract. Right. And you said there's tangibles and and there's a a lot of these things when we talk about living and and finding your why and and executing on that why, right? Mm -hmm. There are realities that for some people make make it impractical. Like it's not even a matter of feeling, I feel like I'm not succeeding or I'm feeling isolated from my why. It's I'm I you know literally can't afford to do this job because I can't pay right. the rent in the city where I live or yeah. something like that. Right. It's not a practical reality that I can live the why that I still believe in because I can't manage the the rest of my life things like that that are and we should want we should want educators to believe strongly in that why you know uh, there's every Mm -hmm. now and then it seems as though it's treated as a privilege to get to have a why right Mm -hmm. there's sort of an outdated Mm -hmm. archaic view on the economy and the workplace where it's like you just do what you have to do and and living towards some greater purpose that's that that's you shouldn't expect that but that's what this is right? i mean mm-hmm. if we want to do the best possible job of educating kids something that's not going to be an easy job and that requires a lot of sustained effectiveness and perseverance the system should protect that why and mm-hmm. find ways to make sure that it is honored and on the other side of it, that it's not used cudgel, I guess, right? To say, well, you're mm-hmm. not allowed to care about other things because this is the only mm-hmm. reason why you're here. And part of that probably gets to that starting point of, give, you know, educators giving themselves forgiveness for mm-hmm. the feelings that they're having, whether it's burnout. Yeah disengagement demoralization whatever to say you're not if there's nothing wrong with you feeling what you're feeling because it's all authentic to you and the starting point in trying to kind of reverse it or heal with it is understanding that it's happening why it's happening and and what you might do from there yeah absolutely and I think another you know to add on to what you're saying is that it's really difficult sometimes for people to use the word healing when it comes to work. It feels weird. You know, why would you have to heal for work, you know? And I think as we move forward, I've kind of said like that is the, that's a space that I believe that we're actively moving into is for people to understand that that healing happens in a lot of different ways. And it has to be recognized in a lot of different ways. So we, we think of healing as things like, well, I went through a traumatic experience as a child and I now have to heal for that, from that. Or I was abused by my spouse and I now have to heal from that. Or I lost my mother and now I have to heal from that. But also like disengaging from a job that is so closely tied to your identity, you know, like 
for most educators, if I say, who are you? They'll say, well, I'm a wife, a mom, and a teacher, or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a brother, son, and I'm a dog dad, and I'm a teacher. Like it's very closely related to their identity. And so when we, when something is that related to identity and you start to disengage from it, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of hurt. You almost go through like a, you know, like a grief, like a cycle of grief. And it's difficult to relate healing and job (laughs) that doesn't feel right. And yet that's exactly what it is. And so, yeah, we have to be able to first like recognize what's happening. We have to learn about what it is about ourselves, be very self-aware, grow our, our own emotional, you know, kind of EQ, our own emotional knowledge about ourselves. And then we need to be able to implement that and heal over time in order to kind of re-engage that piece again. Right. And again, I think the healing piece illustrates the still ongoing lack of clarity, lack of consistent understanding of mental health versus physical health Mm -hmm. right because there clearly there's uh, a variety of profession you know I'll just use sports for an example where if somebody has a broken leg or a a torn rotator cuff their employer is going to want them to heal because Mm -hmm. what if they tried to perform with that injury they would be totally ineffective and they wouldn't be helping anybody Mm -hmm. and eventually it would become so painful that they would just quit entirely and probably Mm -hmm. be beyond healing at that point right Mm -hmm. now why is that any different with a stress or mental or emotional related injury to say Mm -hmm. that if you're not whole in that way, you're not going to be as effective and Mm -hmm. it's only going to chip away so far until you're going to permanently disengage from the situation. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And like in the case of teacher attrition, like that was the big question I was getting asked during the pandemic. Like, how do we stop teacher attrition? And I said, if they're leaving, it's too late because when you take people who are so emotionally connected to a job and they have gone through years of education years of learning and hours of teaching that they weren't really paid for and they choose to actually leave that job they have already emotionally disengaged from what they're doing and so the attrition isn't actually the problem the emotional engagement that happened prior to it is And so actually the best thing that you can do is if people are to the point where they're leaving is you can say, say, you know what, I'm so glad you made this choice for you because obviously this would be a really difficult choice. I hope that you go out there and you heal and you decide to come back Mm -hmm. instead of making them feel guilty and bad for the choice that they feel like they have to make. And then they leave and they never come back to teaching. And because there's so much guilt that accompanies that anyway, that nobody needs more of that. <laughs> so I, I think even the attitude that we, we move forward with when it comes to teachers who have left the profession, that needs to change as well. Right. And, and that's also not going to be very helpful toward uh, yes. the profession, right? right? When they <laughs> can see it from that side and see, okay, there's clearly an unhealthy dynamic here. There's there's a harsh attitude toward uh, people making decisions that they have to make. And this just mm-hmm. seems to be the cycle of things. Well, maybe I, I want to avoid that entirely, which is a problem because we, we need, mm-hmm. we really need uh, people in this profession. And so, you know, in this book and it's reigniting the flame. So of course, a lot of it's about that re-engagement piece of mm-hmm. those who are disengaged, which comes after, hopefully at the beginning, there was some engagement to be, right? Like what is, <laughs> what does that kind of cycle look like of, particularly if we're thinking about maybe actions administrators can be doing or the kind of culture that we want to build when we're, you know, trying to create that engagement in the first place, and then being aware of what's going on and seeing those opportunities for that re-engagement. But I'm thinking maybe viewing that as a 
continuous cycle of trying to create mm -hmm. and maintain and reinforce the engagement in the profession and just understanding that there's a lot of things that make it challenging, but, but staying tuned into it to try to take appropriate action. Yeah. And that's a huge part of it is that awareness piece and knowing how you're feeling at almost all times. And one thing I often uh, suggest is to do some emotional tracking. And so whether it's daily or weekly, you, you know, just, it can be as simple as using like a smiley face system and notating what happened uh, during that week that made you feel a certain way. And over time, you may see that around March, you're always kind of feeling yuck. And just to recognize that as something that it is and to be more proactive about it. But really understanding how you feel is one part of that. There's, to me, there's two pieces of re-engagement. The first is the systemic issues that happen in the culture, uh, the culture issues that are typically present in a school where there's a lot of disengaged teachers. That takes a really strong will, honestly, by the entire staff to be able to recognize that in an appropriate way and make plans to try to change it. What will probably happen is as they incrementally move down to improving the climate and culture, the people who struggle and who cannot maintain that level of positivity around them, they're going to start to leave. And that's not a bad thing. I think we think of people leaving buildings or moving buildings or districts as a bad thing. It's not because that may not have been the right place for them. And they might go to another place that actually they find is much better for them and is more on, just fills a gap that they were feeling at their previous place. So it doesn't have to be a bad thing or a negative thing. It can actually be a really good thing because then this, that school is moving forward and they're you know refilling positions with people that fit into the climate and culture. And so that's one piece of it. The other piece is the personal individual piece. And that piece is the harder one for schools because they can't force anybody to heal. They have to, that person has to decide on their own that they want to do it. Then they have to have enough emotional intelligence to understand what they need, um, whether that's going and seeing a counselor, whether that's um, practicing self-care, uh, which has got a bad rap, but is truly a way that you do heal, you know, whether that's stepping away from the position for a little while and taking some time, or maybe just staying in schools, but changing positions, like that person has to be able to figure out what it is that they need. And so those two pieces have to be working in tandem. And if you have a lot of people in a school that are not that are not engaged and somebody is trying to re-engage, honestly, the best thing that, that they can do for themselves is find a different school because it's more important that person takes steps to help themselves heal than it is to continually live in a space that doesn't serve you anymore. And so those are, are sort of the two things that are going on at once. And so... I, I'm not sure I fully answered your question, but there's like, there's just so many pieces right, to right. it that people have to recognize. And, and then you also have to think about like the individual, do they have people around them, surrounding them who are supportive and, and things as well. Staying engaged is definitely a ongoing process. And I've often, I've kind of joked that like, it reminds me very much of being married. You know, you first get into uh, a marriage or into um, education and you're excited and it's fun and, and everybody's like, if you, my husband is, leaves a fork in the sink, I'm like, oh, that's okay. He's amazing. He's great. We just got married. The fork's not a problem. And then eight years in, I'm like, if you leave a fork in the sink one more time, mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. And education can kind of be like that too, if you're not careful and you're not putting the time and energy into a marriage or into your relationship with your work. You know, both things can happen. It can start to feel irritating after a while. And so, so watching it over time, knowing that even me and what I know about emotional engagement, I've burnt out and become demoralized several times over the course of my career. The difference being that 
I could recognize it sooner and I had the strategies to use to do something about it. And so those, that's really what you're trying to build. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, MyFlex Learning. Let's talk about flex time in schools. The potential benefits to our students make it totally worth exploring. There's more time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students and the increased engagement that comes along with it, dedicated time for intervention, and overall, as school leaders, it provides you and your faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold you back from ensuring students make good use of their time. That's why I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with the seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. If you want to see for yourself, visit myflexlearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash BE. You'll learn all about MyFlex Learning, what it can do for your school, and you'll receive a $500 off offer for your first year. Check it out. You referenced a couple of times the, the support system or the people around you, and that goes both ways. And that's why it's so uh, critical. You know, one of the reasons, at least, why it's so critical for this to be addressed at the organizational level, because it's contagious. Right? It's mm -hmm. contagious when there's a positive culture mm -hmm. and it's contagious in the reverse. And one of the types of disengagement, and you can um, describe how this is different from other types, but I mean, one of the ones that to me stands out as like the most uh, contagious and it can sweep right through is the demoralization piece. Cause it's almost mm -hmm. like demoralization. This is going to be a clunky way to describe it but it's sort of like the opposite of burnout you talked about the embers right and and everything is kind of burning down and the embers are still there and that's that purpose piece right and you're burning out you're mm -hmm. burning and, and you're just okay there's nothing like i'm kind of exhausted i need to reignite this to me the demoralization is like the fire is burning you're going through the motions but there's no mm -hmm. like there's nothing underneath it so as soon as it gets mm -hmm. extinguished oh, we can't relight this fire because there was nothing, right? Like I no yeah. longer believed in the purpose of what I was doing or in my organization's ability to achieve mm -hmm. that purpose. So I can kind of go through the motions for a while mm -hmm. and I think about something else I want to do or just because whatever, right? But yeah, once yeah. that starts sweeping around and I start looking at my colleagues and we start realizing, mm -hmm. hey, none of us really believe in what we're doing anymore. That seems to me to be even more contagious than anything else. M much of this is if you're not necessarily experiencing it personally, you might not get it secondhand, but that piece, yeah, again, positively yeah. contagious and negatively mm -hmm. contagious, depending on how it's going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, demoralization is kind of like, this is probably going to be a terrible analogy, but it's like having a fire and wanting to cook a hot dog and putting the hot dog in the fire. The fire doesn't do anything to it. Like, right, you know, right. It's like, the, the fire just does not work. <laughs> and so for those of you listening, demoralization is you, you know, feel this need to make a difference in what you're doing and something is challenging that so that you don't feel like you're making a difference anymore. So the pandemic is a super easy example, but like Ross is saying, it can spread through a school very quickly through things like even test scores. I think test scores are kind of low hanging fruit when it comes to demoralization because you have your entire staff in there. The staff has been in a meeting, they've been working really hard and somebody comes in and says, Hey, we're at the bottom of the barrel in the state. Like our test scores are, are the lowest in the state. Like, what are we going to do? And you feel like, well, I've been working so hard and nothing I'm doing is working. And so I don't, I'm not making a difference anymore. Maybe I just need to get out of education because I got, that's what I came here. And I've often related demoralization again to an identity issue. You know, you where you felt like you made a difference before is not necessarily 
you, you don't feel like you're doing that anymore, even though you are. Like it's still happening. You're still making that difference in other ways, but you don't see it. And so sometimes we need to start identifying in a different way in order to be able to find, like in order to do the remoralization again. So I'll give you an example. I had worked with a teacher in Texas and she was awesome, loved her. And I had actually started working with her on some technology integration things. That's what I was there for. And when I talked to her, I said, why did you join the program to the, the group to do the technology integration stuff? And she said, to be honest, because I just, I'm not sure why I'm teaching anymore. And I really thought that potentially this would help me out. And so she was doing great things, not only in her classroom, but also for herself to be able to recognize that and to take on something new, even in that state. That was fantastic. Like she was, she really was trying. And so when, as I spoke to her more, I found out that she really identified with this very specific way that she taught literacy. She was a middle school literacy teacher. And the district had just purchased a very canned curriculum that she was expected to follow that didn't jive with the way she had taught literacy in the past. So she felt she was a really good literacy teacher because she taught literacy this way. Mm -hmm. But now she had to teach it a different way. And that, that really sort of battled against her identity that she had in that way she taught literacy. So when we... I discussed demoralization with her and I told her, you know, what it was. And so that's really like the first step is understanding what's happening. And I said, it's like, we need to potentially, we, we can lean into this ed tech stuff. Absolutely. Like finding another sort of niche and your teaching is definitely one way to do that. Um, another thing that we can do though, is that we can see if we can try to figure out within this CAN curriculum, how can you use some of those teaching strategies you were doing using before and sort of migrate them into that can curriculum and you know so working kind of that idea of that freedom within fences we know what our constraints are so how can we take what we know we do well and mesh it with those constraints and you know she found that it really was like that demoralization was a big part and as she started to heal that piece she was able to better lean into the ad tech, you know, stuff with that. And so um, that's really a, a piece of what demoralization is. And it's, but like you said, we have these, it's actually, you know, I can explain why the culture things happen like they do. Part of the reason is because we as individuals have these things in our brain called mirror neurons. We're actually made to try to, uh, mirror the people we are around. That's our brain tries to do that because one of our goals is to try to fit into groups. You know, we are an individual, but we also need to try to belong. We're social creatures. That's part of what our brain does. And so we have these mirror neurons. And so when we go into a building and we're there over time and we start to see people doing certain things or acting a certain way or being super positive or being super negative, we will start to act like those people. And it's because our brain is trying to make us fit in. So when you talk about it being sort of its own kind of pandemic, that's why it happens, because we're trying to fit into the group, no matter what we want to do. Because our brain doesn't have, our, our actual brain does not have a moral compass. It doesn't tell us whether it's positive or negative, we should or shouldn't do it. It's just going to try to mimic people to fit in. And um, so that's why it's so important to be able to have those relationships in those buildings and, and be in a culture and climate that supports you. Yeah, I, I think there are potentially times where the culture of a, a particular school building, say, particularly the negative culture of it, can be mistaken for the realities of the profession as a whole. Right? I mean, there's a certain mm -hmm. number, I don't know what the percentages are, but there's a certain significant percentage of teachers who have only taught in one school, right? Certainly yeah. mm -hmm. compared to people in other sectors of the workforce who may change their, their organization more frequently. And 
some of them may not realize that there are things that are just negative about the culture of their building, their organization yeah. that mm-hmm. may be completely different elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it makes a huge, it makes a huge difference to understand mm-hmm. when there is an intentionality about the way that culture is created and set and built. And, you know, when there's some scaffolded leadership at different levels, right? And it passes on and there's a, a real effort to that, which is the great opportunity that exists to create mm-hmm. that, but also the urgency of it, that it's, it may be, again, contrasting it with other professions where somebody's unhappy in their company and they say, I need to go work somewhere else. Not necessarily, I need to find a completely different profession because every place is going to be the same. But I do, I mean, I do think there is a feeling because there are common issues and common challenges, right, that exist across the system, that mm-hmm. the way that you're made to feel in your environment mm-hmm. and the representation and your sense of hopefulness versus hopelessness and is can really be affected by that building level culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Building, I would say building level culture. And this is one of those things where like one of the things that I have been talking about is our sense of what we have control over and what we don't. And sometimes I feel like we take on some of the societal issues as things we feel like we have control over or we should have control over and we don't. And even those types of things, like the community that they're in and how, you know, supportive or not supportive of the schools, you know, people that are there. And that's not a, that's not like a nod to any certain, you know, level of resources or anything like that. Like there's, there are schools at all levels of communities that they're in that have a lot of support, like a lot of emotional support from the community. And then there are schools that have a lot of stuff, but not a lot of emotional support in the community. So I think that we, even when we talk about climate and culture, we also have to think about that community space and the, you know, the emotional things that are happening there, the emotional resources that are there, the support that is there, and then of course, society at large and what we have as well. So things we don't have control over, but we may have influence over, but that can be really difficult as well if we're in a community with a lot, not a lot of emotional support. And we're trying to, as teachers, backfill the emotional support that's not there. And so that's also a place where we're taking, we may be taking capacity that we just don't. So Manny, I wanted to to finish up with a, a note on self-care and you referenced earlier, sometimes it gets this bad rap and, but there, there's types and just facts about self-care that a lot of people may not be aware of or may not be thinking of because it means a lot Mm -hmm. of different things or a lot of different ways to go about it. Are there any of those that come to mind that you think are not always thought about or overlooked or misunderstood? Yeah. So one of the things that I've laughed about a little bit when people have said, oh, self-care, it was absolutely weaponized by some districts during the pandemic. 1,000%. You know, it it was that if teachers just did self-care, that they would be better and they would be healthier and, and things. And yet there, of course, wasn't anything taken off their plates. Nothing changed. It was, they were just expected to do extra. And, and that, you know, that was wrong by what districts did. And ultimately what a lot of the districts did is it gave self-care this kind of bad rap that people would say, and they were so sick of hearing it. They didn't want to, you know, because it was used against them. Well, if you would just practice self-care, then you would be better. But the reality is that self-care is one of the ways that we heal, taking care of ourselves, making sure that we have what we need, even as far as silly as things like going to the dentist and taking care of our health and trying to maybe not totally change your diet, but eat a little healthier from day to day. Like those are all things that are self-care. And I think some of the ways that we, uh, some of the pieces of self-care that are overlooked you know, are the things that are more internal. And so if I said to a lot of people, tell me a self-care practice, they might say running or yoga, or they usually go for the physical types of Mm self-care, lifting weights, whatever it is. 
but I've actually said that there are four types of self-care. You know, there's the physical, which again is the most common. There's also intellectual, which I think is very important for teachers. A lot of teachers enjoy intellectual stimulation. And so making sure that they're learning something outside of teaching is important. So whether that's just learning a new hobby and it doesn't have to be something that's commercialized. It can be very, you know, inexpensive. It can be going out and it can be going out and identifying trees if that's what you like. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be something that you pay for. And we have spiritual, which is not necessarily a religion, but can be just centering yourself and, and understanding yourself a little bit better, what your purpose is, things like that. And then there's the emotional. And the emotional to me can be anything that makes you feel joy. So if that means that it is going and spending time with your mom on a Sunday, then that's what you do. You know, if it's, or any family member, a niece or nephew or whatever, then, then that's emotional self-care. If it makes you feel good, that's emotional self-care. And so those are the things that I think are often overlooked. We think it has to be something that you know, that is uh, something we buy or something that we pay to do. And that's just really the, the commercialized side of, of self-care. I also think we have the things that are sort of backfilling our needs that we may be overlooking. For a long time, I felt, uh, you know, when I kind of started this journey that I was keeping myself busy in order to really ignore some of the other issues I clearly had going on in my life. And uh, so sometimes self-care is about stopping and recognizing what's happening around you and trying to deal with some of those pieces that you have yet to deal with. And it wasn't until that moment that I started to heal from some of the other things that were happening in my life that were contributing to my, my disengagement. And so self-care is it's important and it's ignored by teachers because they're put in a place where a lot of their value is calculated, like they feel their value is calculated on how much they do for other people. And so that's the, that's the, you know, kind of something we need to get away from and start to help people understand that they're not valued based on how much they give to other people. Their value is there no matter how much they're giving to other people. Yeah. And, and it would seem that there could be a reality where when your concerns about your profession, the things that are stressing you out, things you care about, your dedication to it, your lack of feeling as though you are any longer in control of the situation, right? Mm -hmm. That what takes the place of quote unquote self-care is more opportunities to be avoidant than to really, mm -hmm. it's like, again, if I'm in working at a certain place and I'm just having such a rough time of it that I just decide I just need to go anywhere else just to not be mm -hmm. here anymore. But I didn't really think about, well, what do I want that's different? What would I like or what would be better? Yeah. Uh, then I'm just mm -hmm. pursuing some activity that's just anything but this, right? <laughs> Take yeah. my mind yeah. off for a while, which in the long run is just not replenishing. It's not right. that it's not understandable, but it's yep. not necessarily going to be the same as doing whatever that activity is that refills some of that energy, some mm -hmm. of that psychic energy that yep. is depleted and just feels like I chose this. This is what I decided to do because it, it meant something to me. And that's just a process of being able to take the time and think it through and for each mm -hmm. person to determine what that is for them. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent avoidance can be practiced practiced in a lot of ways that are socially acceptable. You know, drinking wine mm -hmm. is one of them. And I have no, nothing against people who drink wine, but like going home and having several glasses of wine can be an avoidance tactic that's used in order to avoid other things going on in their life. The thing I chose was something that was very socially acceptable. I worked and I worked more and I worked more and I worked more. And it was only to avoid the other things that were happening in my life. But nobody would have said that because I was getting stuff done. I was being successful. I was doing all the things and all it was an avoidance tactic. And so to be able to step back and really say, like, what am I putting energy into that really makes me feel 
good and is not, I'm just, I'm not using as a way to avoid doing something else. Like that's so important. And like you said, to be able to then choose the thing, like that is such a huge switch to be able to choose the thing you're doing, you know, to not sit on your phone and scroll through social media for hours, be able to choose to go outside and throw the ball to your dog or whatever it is. Like that's really, that's a huge shift. Absolutely. So listeners, you can learn more about the book, Reignite the Flames and Mandy's other books at her website, mandyfralick.com, which we'll link below. Mandy, is there other stuff that people can learn about there or other things you're working on? Yeah, actually. So I just got my certification in mental health first aid. So I'm super excited about that to just add to some of the, you know, strategies we can use to help ourselves and others. I also have another book coming out with Solution Tree pretty soon. So I'm working on that. And it's actually due to right at midnight. So that's happening. And then I've been adding some, I just opened up kind of a divergent university on uh, my website as well, that people can find courses. I have a free self-care course on there for educators, and I'm trying to add one course a month. So those will uh, be on there as well. Excellent. Well, listeners, by the time you hear this, that book manuscript will have been submitted. You can (laughs) (laughs) wait a while for the book itself, but yeah, check out the website. Again, we'll link it below. We'll link uh, Mandy's social media and have more information there. So check that out. If you're interested in any and all of these materials, please do also subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one. We have a lot of great ones coming up. And please also visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our 30 plus shows. So thank you all for listening. And thanks, Mandy, for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been The Authority Podcast. Hosted by Ross Romano. Edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE. E.